This is Husker Online, your authority on Nebraska athletics. In this weekly show, the Husker Online team will give you the latest insight on Husker football, basketball, baseball, and of course, recruiting. Now, here's your host, Husker Online publisher, Sean Callahan. Hello here and welcome to another holiday edition of the Husker Online show. We are a little bit earlier again for you, building the show around the holiday and it is the last week, not only of 2019, the last week of the decade. Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, Nate Klaus is somewhere, hopefully not in a ditch, Robin, um, tr- trying to trek his way back uh, on those treacherous Interstate 80 uh, road conditions. Yeah, Nate uh, was one of the many people affected by the winter storm and tried to make the drive from Sydney, Nebraska to Lincoln when the entire state <laughs> essentially was under a winter advisory. He made it to Gothenburg, uh, had to hotel up, and then... Uh, <laughs> Made the, made the decision to go back roads back to Lincoln. So we'll hope we're, we're T's and P's, Nate, T's and P's. <laughs> we, hope, we hope Nate is making it back. But wanted to spend this opening segment, you know, not a lot going on, um, obviously, with the holidays in terms of just on-campus things with football and, and, the, and the programs. But it is the last week of the decade. So um, we're going to go very cliche here, Robin. We're going to have our special decade show of the Husker Online show. But, um, you know, when, when you look at just what the 2010s were for Nebraska, that's where, where I want to start out. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think you have to, when you talk about what was the biggest storyline of the decade, I mean, I think two things, joining the Big Ten and hiring Scott Frost. Yeah, and I think the Big Ten probably um, even more so just because, I mean, it it shifted um, Nebraska sports in so many different ways, not just football, but uh, go down the list of how that move um, you know, not only impacted the, just the competitive aspect of every sport in, on, in the university, but uh, the financial implications there. I mean, Nebraska got a big chunk of change uh, out of that contract. and New uh, facilities yeah. galore everywhere. And they kind of threw themselves into it where uh, they're going into a completely different animal, essentially, going from the Big 12, I mean, just from football perspective and, and basketball as well. But, uh, I mean, it was a, a pretty massive um, domino that fell during that time of conference realignment where once Nebraska moved, then it, all of a sudden things kind of uh, there's a ripple effect off of that. So that they were the first real uh, big piece uh, to, to Colorado and Nebraska. Yeah, to really to really go um, when that thing was really starting to get going. And so um, you know, I think that not only shifted Nebraska's you know decade, but uh, college football and college athletics in, in a lot of different ways as well. You're listening here to the Husker Online Show as we discuss. Uh, what the 2010s have meant here in this decade and you know the 2010s haven't brought a lot of championships uh, for Nebraska Um, just two conference title game appearances in football that was the 2010 Big 12 title game and the 2012 Big 10 title game as Nebraska played in two Um, basketball Robin Nebraska made an NCAA tournament kind of a flukish year I mean everything just broke right and you know Nebraska beat Wisconsin on no sit Sunday, and that was a Wisconsin team, I believe, that played for the national championship mm-hmm. that year. Yeah, I know they went to the Final Four, but uh, they all got you know, the the construction of PBA uh, Pinnacle Bank Arena. That was the first year, right? Yeah, t- 2013 was the was the first year of that, uh, and that was that was the year they made the tournament. Yeah, and so you know that there's obviously a big step for Nebraska basketball and getting to the tournament for the first time since uh, I think the 97, late 98. Yeah, since since the late 90s, and so I mean you know they made progress, but still um, were never able to take that next step, and then you could throw in the, the hiring of Fred Hoiberg, you know, maybe not quite the impact uh, of a Scott Frost returning home, but 
it's it's up there. I mean, you get a guy with that that clout in college basketball coming to Nebraska, a program that has the track record it does. Um, it was a, a pretty big coup by uh, Bill Moose in this athletic department. Yeah, if I would have told you in 2008, Nebraska basketball would hire the coach of the Chicago Bulls, that was the Sweet 16 coach at Iowa State, and they'd hire Scott Frost, who at the time was the hottest coaching candidate that year coming out in the ranks of college football. I think most people are like, there's this, I mean, they, they wouldn't believe you because mainly because mm-hmm. Nebraska didn't really spend that kind of money on coaching hires. And that you, you talked about the money and, and that's where it's different. I mean, Nebraska has gotten so much more money with the Big Ten. They've been able to make hires and do things with the facilities that they never could have dreamed of doing in the Big 12 to the point where they have so much additional monies left over that they donate it back to the school where 20% of UNL students now, undergraduates, are on some sort of scholarship, like a $1,500 on average scholarship, mm-hmm. from money that's given in Nebraska from the Big Ten Conference. Yeah, and then you pair that with you know the ending the decade with the announcement of the, the new football, I guess, athletic facility, 155 million dollar um, mega structure that you know will <laughs> which comes out to about $85 per person in the state of Nebraska if every person wrote a check to pay for this thing I mean think about that I know that's crazy so I mean this it's been a lot of attempts at trying to get Nebraska athletics over the hump you know they're doing everything they're they're putting their money where their mouth is and they have a lot more of money uh, to back it up and so there's been no shortage of effort on Nebraska's part but for whatever reason the results on the field on the court uh, for men's athletics here, it just it just hasn't been there. And so now the hope is that with all the efforts and money spent during this decade, next decade, we'll start seeing some tangible results uh, with on-field and on-court success. And I, I'd be remiss to say the 2010s too, Robin. I mean, it was kind of the takeout Harvey, Harvey Perlman decade as well for Nebraska. I mean, this is a guy that was squarely involved in all of the changes of Nebraska with coaching moves, firing 9-1 coaches multiple times. Um, you know, making questionable head coach hires, questionable AD hires um, that, you know, that that took place. They, they were able, I mean, Nebraska, Chinsa Perlman retired or however you want to say it, but then Shot Eichhorst was fired uh, by Hank Bounds. And I think Bounds coming in, you know, played a factor of getting Scott Frost here. So you look at just that whole circle of stories there between Perlman, Bounds, Eichhorst, Moose, that little deal to me that is a huge chunk of the 2010s and kind of reshaping nebraska's history yeah it changed the face of nebraska athletics from the very very top i mean all the way up to the university administrative level i mean it's uh i certainly can't remember this much change happening in a 10-year period when you take into account all the coaching changes all the athletic director uh you know chancellors uh you know university presidents i mean it's it's been wild this the amount of turnover that's happened from uh top to bottom within this university and this athletic department that you know probably fairly unprecedented in in at least past few decades to me this is the only time where it seems like things are all on the same page where you've got a football coach and a president and athletic director and a basketball coach, everyone's kind of together, hand in hand. And the chancellor. I mean, Ronnie Green has been very, very public yes. uh, in, his, in, in his support to what's going on here and supporting Scott Frost, supporting Bill Moose. Um, so I, I think that's key because there were so many years where that wasn't the case, where the chancellor wasn't on board or the AD wasn't on board or, or this or that. And the dysfunction is really, to me, 
as big of a storyline of the 2010s as anything. Yeah, and you see it now. I mean, with just the way things operate, you know, I, mean, I think there's so much more communication going on uh, in, in every level of this athletic department and university, far more so certainly than there was under Perlman and I-Corps, where everything was kind of, you know, behind the, the curtain in Oz. Uh, now, I mean, there's an open dialogue between your football coach and your chancellor and your president and your athletic director to where I think, and the same thing with the basketball coach. I think that there's that, that, that um, open line of communication and dialogue that is going on right now where you're right. Everybody is on the same page and pulling the rope the same direction. And that certainly could not be said in, in, in previous years. And I think that was, um, you know, all the issues Nebraska had in so many different ways. You can probably pinpoint that as maybe one of the biggest culprits of anything. Okay, I'm going to throw a couple over-unders at you. Over-under in the 2020s, Nebraska will win at least three divisional titles. Mm. Our push. All right. Move it to two and a half, and I'll take the over. You'll take three. And I mean, it, there's just so many unknowns. I mean, every, we've talked about taking Wisconsin down for years, and it hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. So until that happens, it's hard to say much more than two to three divisional titles. Um, you know, you, you, it could easily change quickly. But um, basketball, over, under, in the 20s, three NCAA tournament appearances. Over. Over. I mean, it, it, I think people don't realize it's a lot easier to make oh, the NCAA You can get good really quick in basketball because you're dealing with 13 scholarships as opposed to 85. Well, and if the Big Ten is what – it can be an eight-bid league. Sure. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, getting to the NCAA tournament should not be that hard with <laughs> for a, a basketball program that invests the type of money that Nebraska does with its its program. So, I, I don't – and they got the right guy. I have no doubt in my mind Fred Hoiberg will get them to an NCAA tournament, and he'll be the first coach to win an NCAA tournament game. And you play, what, 24, 24 – five power games now in the big 10 so mm-hmm. you can really manipulate the net ratings and things so yeah, yeah. basketball that should happen yeah I, I again i have very little doubt in my mind that that over will hit comfortably all right well when we come back we're going to continue the all decade discussion we're going to give our all decade team for nebraska's offense next you're listening here to the husker online show You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on the Husker Online show, this special decade edition. Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, this segment of the Husker Online show brought to you by Tanner Sports Bar and Grill. Get on into any of the Tanner's bars in Omaha 4 and uh, also in Lincoln as all the football action, all the NFL playoffs, all the college bowl games. It is your spot to camp out and watch football all day every day with the action going on here at these playoff games and bowl games as I did that Robin I don't know about you but on that playoff Saturday I made ribs told my wife um leave me alone all day I'm gonna watch football and it worked (laughs) yeah I got in um the majority of them I was doing some family you know post-Christmas events but I was able to watch the majority of those games it stunk though that the Oklahoma LSU game was so bad so quickly it's like okay I mean like yeah basically checked out after halftime I was like debating like should I go to five o'clock church now and just (laughs) go now because I know this game's over and uh and and just get ready for the night game and I I stuck it out I made ribs so it was it was worth it but I want to talk all decade team offense and we came out with this this week um on huskeronline.com and no, I should say no surprise because he was a highly controversial player, but our quarterback was Taylor Martinez. And my reasoning on this was he was the only all Big Ten quarterback for Nebraska in the entire decade. The only first team. And he was first team um, by the coaches. He edged out Braxton Miller 
uh, from Ohio State on the coaches. The media named Braxton Miller the 2012 first teamer, and, and Martinez was the coaches. So um, he was on there. Only one draft pick quarterback that was Tanner Lee. Obviously, didn't have a great year statistically. Um, you could make a only a guy you could probably make a case for is Tommy Armstrong. And um, you know, I, I even said this: if Adrian Martinez would have had a record-breaking get to New York type of year this mm-hmm. year, maybe you make a, he's the guy. Yeah, but he didn't. But he keep, did it. Keep in mind. <laughs> but he did it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Taylor was having that kind of year um, when, before he hurt his ankle against Missouri. Uh, I mean, he was a legitimate Heisman, Heisman Trophy uh, contender. As a freshman. Yeah, as a freshman. And so he was kind of taking college football by storm for a while there and still was able to put together, um, you know, a pretty impressive career when you look back on it. Now, again, it wasn't appreciated just because, of you know some of the the wild inconsistencies you saw out of him, but um, you take into account the, his individual success and the team success that he was able to have, and compare that with every other quarterback that's been here. I don't think it's even close. I mean, he passed for nearly three thousand yards and rushed for over a thousand yards in two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. That was the year Nebraska won the division. He had thirty three total touchdowns between passing and rushing. So exceptional year he had there to take Nebraska to their only divisional Big Ten title in nine seasons of conference play. Now, running back, there are really only three I think you can consider, and we went with Rex Burkhead and Amir Abdullah. Uh, Burkhead finished with 3,836 scrimmage yards, 35 touchdowns, led the Big Ten in rushing um, in one year. I believe it was 2011. Um, he was the leading mm-hmm. rusher. It was kind of a down year. It was like 1,300 and some yards led the conference that year. Um, then Abdullah finished with 5,278 scrimmage yards. That's pass. That's receiving and rushing combined. Uh, 48 total touchdowns. Now, Roy Hallou actually had more scrimmage yards than Rex Burkhead. Burkhead had more touchdowns. Um, it just, to me, it felt like Burkhead, though, was more meaningful for Nebraska over the decade than what Halu did for Nebraska. Your thoughts? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, Roy did break the single-game rushing record. And so, I mean, there's a lot of... Yeah, that's a great point. I there, there's a lot of case that, you know, he could be made for him on there. But, you know, I think you ask most fans, I mean, who, who are your best running backs of this decade? Rex Burkett and Amir Abdullah are the guys people are immediately going to think of. And then then you think about Roy Halu. And that's no fault of Roy's. It's just that, you know, Rex was... Three uh, NFL running backs. Yeah, it was as big of a fan favorite as you're going to find here. Same thing with Amir. And uh, when you look at what was around those guys, uh, I just look back, remember that Iowa game up in Iowa City when Rex carried the ball, it was like 40 times. I was in Lincoln. That was the 2011 game in Lincoln, and he set the school record right, for carries. Right, right. Now the next year in 12, he was hurt, and they brought him in the second half. And he kind of gutted it out, kind of like the way New England uses him now. And he just kind of carried yep. the ball. And, and so those are the types of things that r- people remember. And Roy, Roy had some injury things that kind of like knocked him in and out of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, statistically, Roy is right up there with either of those guys. But I think when you just look back at just the, yeah, the, the, the intangibles aspect of it and, and being uh, such high profile faces of the program. Uh, it's in my opinion, it's a no brainer. Rex, Rex and Amir are, are your two guys. And especially when you take into account all that they did for that offense, I think Roy, they had just more options around him where those guys had to do a lot more on their own. Fullback, Andy Janovich, not even really end much of discussion in a discussion. <laughs> I mean, the only other fullbacks in the era era were Tyler Legate, CJ Zimmer. And I put a fullback on there because gosh, dang it. I'm an old school guy still. I'm, hey. I'm, I'm with you, especially when you look at Andy Janovich is one of their most successful NFL players right now. Uh, yeah, he's got to be on that list. He's on that list along with his his bush light and his chew and his old blue pickup truck. truck. Yep. Blue truck. All right. Now, wide receiver, Robin, you could make a case that yeah. this was the deepest position of the decade for Nebraska on offense. We went with Kenny Bell, 
Jordan Westerkamp, Stanley Morgan as our three. I went with three just because three receivers is kind of more common now uh, as a standard set in football, especially without a fullback. Mm-hmm. Kenny Bell had um, 2,689 yards. Jordan Westerkamp, 2,474. Stanley Morgan Jr., 2,747. So, you know, those are essentially your three all-time leading receivers right there, and they're all in the same decade. Now, J.D. Spielman had 2,546, was still one year to go, um, but he's not been honored at the same level of those guys. He's never played in a bowl game at Nebraska, and you could argue a lot of J.D.'s big numbers came in games when Nebraska was down significantly against Ohio State, against Penn State, where you know he's putting up 200 and some yards receiving uh, when teams are kind of more in a prevent-type defense. Yeah, and I think that's the separator. Uh, I mean, the fact that uh, you know the the stats are are pretty similar, but when you take into the individual accolades of those guys, uh, it's kind of a, a no brainer. I mean, JD just hasn't been recognized at the same level as a Morgan Westerkamp or Bell, uh, and you know, I mean, those guys are are you know first team all conference. Our first selection. or second team, yeah. all three of them. And and JD, I mean, I, I think his his highest accolade is what third team. So I, mean, I think that's kind of where you draw the line is, um, you know, what, what do other people outside of the Nebraska realm uh, put these guys? And right now, J.D. is kind of just a, an also-ran who's put up a lot of numbers in a you know, high-volume offense uh, and hasn't really had much team success that, to go along with it. Now, that certainly can change. I mean, if he comes out and um, returns next year and, and has a great year, then maybe you reevaluate where he is in that pecking order. But right now, I think those are three guys you have to stick with. And then you had some other good guys make the NFL from the decade. Quincy Nunwa had 1,526 yards. Niles Paul, 1,532. Brandon Riley, 1,275. Um, even DeMornay had some moments, and he made a, um, some rosters for a while in the league or got some looks at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so y- you look at just that position in general. I mean, there, there was a lot of talent at receiver in the, in the decade. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reshaped with the, the changing of the guard offensively. Uh, wide receiver was kind of there for the taking for guys to set a lot of records, and we've certainly seen that. Now, tight end, uh, Seaton Carter was our guy. You had Kyler Reed, Ben Cotton, Tyler Hoppus, other tight ends, you know, that maybe had numbers. But Carter, I think we would both agree, was the most complete tight end as a blocker, red zone guy, receiver. Maybe the most underutilized player in, <laughs> of the decade. I mean, he's on an active roster when you in the think NFL. About it, I mean, the fact that he did not get the football more is one of the biggest travesties we've seen uh, from this football program. Now, offensive line, we went with the best five here. I didn't go with these are the tackles, these are the guards, these are the center. Spencer Long. Alex Lewis, Ricky Henry, Jeremiah Searles, Brent Qualley. Now, the first four guys all were honored as all Big Ten level players. Um, you know, whether that was first or second team, all Big Ten, all Big 12 guys. Uh, I think the fifth spot is where maybe you could have a debate. And I went with Qualley at five because of just the reliability that he's shown. And it's kind of carried over to his pro career. He's been in the, the pros now for a good six, seven seasons as well. But um, you know, a good group of linemen, um, you know, I, I think you're going to see better linemen, though, for Nebraska in the 20s. I think that's kind of the, the most striking position group of all this. I mean, because you look at the, the, the guys, the skill positions, uh, I mean, there's kind of some no-brainer guys. And you still get that a little bit with Spencer Long and um, you know, maybe even Alex Lewis to an extent, Ricky Henry for sure. But 
I mean, there's the the depth, and when you look at the the honorable mentions on that list, they they don't do much for you. And so I think when all said and done, uh, Brandon Hymas is certainly going to be in that conversation, um, especially if he comes back and has a strong senior campaign. Um, he's certainly got a sp- uh, opportunity to be a no brainer and, and join and join, replace Quali on yeah, there probably. Yeah, but again, he, I just don't know if he's done quite as much as what Quali did during his time. And then our kick returner. Um, was a uh, and a return specialist was Niles Paul uh, finished with the second most kickoff return yards in school history. I mean, single handedly almost won the Big Twelve title game um, for Nebraska in two thousand nine. Uh, the game against um, Texas, um, you know, had some big big plays in that game. That wasn't a part of this decade, um, but definitely gave Nebraska one of their more consistent return guys over his career. He even return kicks. And punts in the NFL, which mm-hmm. not, not not very many Huskers have done that recently. Yeah, especially as when they're a tight end on offense. But uh, I think you. I mean, I don't know if there's re- really anything close to him um, as far as just the longevity. Uh, there's certainly been guys that had you know flash in the pan seasons. You know, Spielman, uh, Abdullah as a freshman, uh, Demorne Pearsonell as a freshman. But you know, the the long term. Uh, productivity that Niles had at that position in those roles. He wasn't a juke guy either. Yeah, I mean, he, he was just knew where he was going, and he hit it fast, and he had that breakaway speed that was able to separate. And, um, and that's sometimes the most important part than how much dancing you do. And then kicker, kind of a debate. I mean, Alex Henry got the nod over Brett Maher, but, I mean, Alex Henry was 68-76, to 76, set an NCAA record for accuracy with um, almost 88%, 89% over his career. This was always interesting to me. He was first-team All-American in 2010. He was named All-Big 12 over Oklahoma State's Dan Bailey. But Dan Bailey that same year won the Groza Award where Henry wasn't even invited as a finalist. That was a joke. So you think about that. I mean, what a snub. You have a guy named All-Conference, All-American, and the guy in the same conference got the Groza. Alex Henry was as valuable a player as there was on those teams. And you take into account – the big kicks he made, his kickoff ability, and his punting. Uh, I mean, he did everything special teams-wise. Think about the 2009 Oklahoma game, the punts that he did in that game. The oh, dir- yeah. Rick Neuheisel, not Rick Neuheisel, but uh, Gary Barnett was on the radio call, and he said that it was one of the most impactful directional punting games he's ever seen, the way he continually pinned Oklahoma and made them have long fields that entire game. The fact that he didn't have a longer NFL career still baffles me. Sometimes it's all about where you land, and he had to go to uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And, you know, you kick in Pittsburgh and Philly and these cold weather, windy cities. It's where kickers go to die. It's a different ballgame. That's (laughs) why that position's a revolving door right now. All right, we're going to talk defense when we come back next here. You're listening here to the Husker Online Show. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on this special holiday, New Year's, post-New Year's edition of the Husker Online show as we are looking back at the decade of the 2010s. Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, we just gave our thoughts on Nebraska's all-decade offensive team here. Robin, let's talk all-decade defense. And, you know, it's a lot of talent came through Nebraska when you look at the all-decade team, a lot of that talent, though, came through at the beginning of the decade. You know, obviously the back half of the decade has been pretty lean with defensive talent, with draft picks. Uh, but let's start on the defensive line. Um, you know, you had a couple guys here from those two thousand early teams. Uh, Jared Crick, um, defensive tackle. You know, he was an all-Big 12 first-teamer draft pick, played many years in the NFL. Malik Collins starts in the NFL right now for the Cowboys. Randy Gregory with the Cowboys still, and 
He's had multiple suspensions and issues and continues to get a chance, which tells you just how talented Randy Gregory is. Um, and then, you know, the fourth spot, this is where I had a hard time. Yeah, this was tough. You, you, you look at that fourth spot, and Eric Martin is who I went with. He was first team all Big 12, which, excuse me, Big 10 back in 2012. Um, you know, led Nebraska in sacks. He was an effective edge pass rush guy um, with eight and a half sacks and 18 tackles for loss. Now, I went with him over Baker Steinkuhler and Vincent Valentine. Those were the only guy, other guys I really considered. Yeah, it's hard. I, I probably would stick with Martin just from based off that productivity in 2012. I mean, eight and a half sacks, 18 tackles for loss. That's Those are big time numbers. And especially when you look at a program over the last 10 years that I mean, outside of Rand, Randy Gregory, who are your, your edge rushers? I mean, I mean, you could make a case for Khalil Davis this year. He had a really good year statistically, but just the meaning of the games. He, that's the thing. I mean, when you're winning four or five games a year, it's you know, the stats don't mean as much. But uh, Valentine is probably the only guy that I would maybe listen to a conversation to join that list just because he was really, really good. And he played a position where you're not going to get stats, and his draft pick uh, by the Patriots uh, I think shows just Like third how, round, right? Yeah, shows how the fact they took him so high shows you know just kind of where he was in the NFL eyes. Yeah, and uh, Eric Martin, you know, people forget his value on special teams, too. I mean, how many guys his size could run and cover kicks like he did? And Who was the announcer? Ed Cunningham. <laughs> Ed Cunningham is still mad at Eric Martin. I mean, he died on the cross for Eric Martin in those concussion hits. I mean, he was, I mean, he was just going to go he down. He wanted Eric Martin arrested on the field, I think. That was, and I mean, Ed Cunningham stepped away from announcing football because of the violence of the game, the head injuries. Yeah, good riddance. <laughs> See you, Ed. Ed did teach me how to put cheese in the chili first. I'll give Ed credit that when you make your chili at Memorial Stadium, Ed Cunningham's the first guy I ever saw that put the cheese in first, mm. then the chili over the cheese, and then it melts. It is a game changer. It's Ed Cunningham. That. So thank you, Ed, for that. I guess he wasn't all bad. <laughs> linebacker. <laughs> you look at here, all-decade linebacker. I mean, really, was Levante David to you the player of the decade for yes. Nebraska? I mean, if you were yes. to say the player of the decade. Yep. I mean, maybe one of those running backs, Burkheader, uh, Abdullah, got to be in that conversation. But I think when people look back at, you know, who's your favorite Husker of the last 10 years, it's Levante David. I think more often than not, he was a generational talent. And it's unfortunate that he only played, you know, a couple of years here, but uh, he still made as big of an impact on this program as any linebacker, any defensive player, and really any player uh, that has come through since, since 2010. I go back to that game at Penn State. Um, and it was the 2011 game. What do you have, like 18 tackles that game or something? Yeah, let's look that up here because that Penn State-Nebraska well, yeah, game. There was that game and then obviously the forced fumble that changed the Ohio State game. Nebraska's only win over Ohio State uh, where he ripped the ball out of there and, I mean, essentially turned the game around single-handedly. And what was crazy is that it took him forever to get on the field because he was such a reactionary player. And because of his athleticism, he was able to overcome maybe not knowing the playbook because he was just so instinctual that see football, go get football. And he did that better than any linebacker that's played here. Well, yeah, originally um, Sean Fisher and Will Compton yep. were playing over him. And then they, you know, because Pelini basically only played one linebacker on a lot of plays. And Fisher got hurt. And then Fisher broke his leg. But, yeah, you go back to that Penn State game. Penn State was like a top 10, top 15 team in state college. Um, what did he finish with? He had nine tackles that game out at Happy Valley. So he didn't lead Nebraska. But there was a final drive where Penn State was you know, driving to, to possibly win the game, essentially. And Levante David 
made multiple tackles in a row um, to to stop Penn State, you know, from from getting a first down. And I mean, that that won the game for Nebraska. When when you go back and like look at that, the history of how that game played out. Yeah, I mean, again, I I, do, I would not hesitate really. Um, again, the only people I would even consider are Burkhead and Abdullah. Uh, for your player of the decade, for me personally, it's Levante David, uh, hands down. I mean, <laughs> the guy, the guy was a single-handedly changed games on the defensive side of the ball, which um, that in itself speaks to his value. And I don't know if Nebraska is going to see a player of of just his overall ability and impact, uh, maybe in a long time. Okay, so here is the Levante J- yeah, David drive, three fifty-two left in the fourth quarter. Nebraska was holding on, to, I believe, a three-point lead at that time. It's second and two. Levante David makes a tackle, one-yard gain, um, so then it's third and one. Levante David tackles Silas Red, no gain, fourth and one. Silas Red, who was a leading rusher in the Big Ten, Levante David tackled him again. So he made three tackles, impactful tackles, in the box to win a game. You know, individual get-off-block plays where you just had to be a dude. I mean, that, that was just the kind of guy he was, and Nebraska won that game on the road. You know, in, in a pretty, con, you know, and that was the first game without Joe Paterno. It was a 17 14 win um, on the road for Nebraska to, to get out of there with a, you know, Penn State was 8 and 1 going into that game. I mean, just look at the numbers 285 tackles in two seasons. I mean, he's a top, he's, I think, fourth, end his career fourth on the uh, school's career tackle list playing two seasons. He has two of the top five single season tackle totals, including uh, his 152 in 2010. I mean, that, <laughs> what more do you need to be, need to say? There? All right, Will Compton, I think almost underappreciated at times as a player, but then you see that he's still playing in his the NFL league. career. I mean, that that shows you how good he actually was. I think if anything, his skill set wasn't made for the Big Twelve uh, because of the spreads, and you yeah, know he was matched up in coverage against those you know wide receivers, scat backs. That, that was a mismatch, and that's where we get to our next guy, Eric Haig. I mean, he was basically a you know a help change how teams in the conference defend the spread. Bo Pelini uh, going with the hybrid linebackers now that really everybody in the Big 12 uses, and um, it gave teams fits, and Eric Hag was the first guy. And, um, you know, his versatility to play in the box, out of the box, you know, helped Nebraska really win a lot of games in that era. Yeah, I mean, he was a kind of ahead of his time in a lot of different ways, and that's what made Nebraska's defense so effective in that high-powered Big 12 era that they were able to have guys like Eric Haig that they didn't have to take out off the field. I mean, between him and, and Gomes and that, that defensive backfield, that was as good of a secondary as Nebraska's had in, in decades probably. All right, now the secondary, because um, we kept Haig as a linebacker, the secondary, the I think four of them were really easy. Prince Mucamara, first-team All-American. Alfonso Dennard, he won the Big, the Big Ten cornerback of the year in the first year of the conference for Nebraska. So he was named the um, the Woodson Award or whatever they give it, I, I believe, that year the, to the top corner in the mm, conference. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the safeties, Nathan Gary, Damian Stafford, both of them all Big Ten level NFL safeties. Uh, I wanted to do a fifth DB just because I felt like five DBs is more common now. Um, and I went with Stanley Jean Baptiste over DeJon Gomes, Josh Kalou, Chris Jones, Lamar Jackson, and Siante Evans. And it was tough um, but I felt like the size that he brought, the physicality, he was a second round or second or third round NFL pick, um, I believe Stanley Jean was. Yeah, second, I think. Second. So, and he was looked at as a first rounder, a lot of people. So that was my determination to go over with Stanley. How about Stanley Jean Baptiste? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that interception he had against Ohio State, I mean, that's one of the more memorable plays uh, of, of the last 10 so years. Nebraska's only win over Ohio State. Yeah, um, but. 
for me, if I, I mean, I would probably vote for Dijon Gomes just because, I mean, I, you hate to put that entire like 2010 secondary on there, but I mean, he was so good. And I think he was such an important part. He's the best secondary in the yeah. country. You talk about what, what Eric Haig meant. I think Dijon Gomes meant just as much because, I mean, he was the quarterback of that, that defense and uh, the play, he made big time plays, uh, you know, game changing interceptions, you know, forced fumbles uh, and, you know, was really just an, as impactful of a safety uh, as there's been, you know, in, in that era. So, uh, I don't necessarily dislike the, the Stanley pick just because, I mean, he, you know, he, he was so impactful in his short amount of time. But Dijon Gomes, I think, would probably get my nod if I, if I were to put this solely on my I'll list. never forget the first Washington game in 10. Steve Sarkeesian told people after the game that Nebraska was one of the best secondaries he'd ever seen in his time coaching in college football. Did Gomes get – or was it Hague or Gomes that got the pick on the, like first, the first – Hague. Hague, yeah. I mean, it was Jake Locker, a first-round pick <laughs> – and, Welcome to the show, Locker. And I mean, he just—I mean, that was an awesome game for Nebraska secondary. I mean, they just locked down those Washington receivers. Now, closing out here, punter um, Sam Fultz. You know, and, and you look at it, maybe one of the best, if not the best, in school history. Um, you know, it's, you, I think you can. Sam Cook would be the other guy you'd argue with. Kyle Larson, All-American guys, right there. Darren Erstad was a good punter, um, but I, I think Sam's athletic ability and just how he was as a person and everything, you know, if he would, he would be making a lot of money still to this day, if not for the tragic accident. Yeah. I mean, if he was able to finish his career, I don't think it's probably even a question of who the best punter is in school history. Is it? And you got guys like uh, Sam cook that would say the exact same thing. Uh, you know, John Harbaugh. I remember this, uh, that, that draft class that, that um, Fultz would have been in uh, made a point during his interview with ESPN to say that, uh, you know, the, Football lost a really special player in person with with Sam Fultz's death, and you know if it's sad because he would have had his name called that day if if you know circumstances would have worked out differently. But yeah, I don't think even a shortened career. I don't think there's any question that Sam Fultz, in my opinion, is the best punter in Nebraska football history. All right, when we come back, we are going to talk some Husker basketball next. Here, as the Huskers uh, came off Christmas, they got a win. And now they head back into the, the main meat of Big Ten Conference play. They have 18 games remaining, all conference games. We'll get Robin's thoughts on that next. You're listening to the Husker Online Show. This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on the Husker Online Show. Sean Callahan, Robin Washett here as uh, our special decade edition of the show as we wrap up 2010. But we do want to talk some basketball as Nebraska got a win uh, kind of a much-needed slump-buster type of game, um, and that's kind of why everyone's scheduling these games now over the holiday. Uh, Nebraska beats Texas A&M Corpus Christi 73-52, and, um, you know, I saw Creighton the other night was playing Midland, mm -hmm. and somehow that game, an in, in, in AIA program in Fremont, that game was on FS1. <laughs> It just shows shows the uh, quality of games going on over Christmas break. But you know, Nebraska gets the win. Was that? It wasn't a BTN game. It was probably a BTN dot com game. Or no, I think it actually it was BTN because they flexed it from. Uh, it was the 1 p.m. time slot because there's only two Big Ten games that day. It was Northwestern and Nebraska, and they paired Northwestern around the Chicago Bears kickoff uh, when that when the NFL schedule came out. So it's so funny they worry about that. Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, like, there's enough people in Chicago that want to watch Northwestern. I don't know games. how many people are going to be watching Northwestern games whenever they play it. But. And the, with the Bears <laughs> on the schedule. But um, Nebraska gets a win. I mean, they didn't play great. I was at the game. Uh, you got in from Iowa and made it right at tip-off. And 
there were some moments that stood out, but definitely a sloppy win, and they kind of were the more athletic team, um, and, and they used that to, to get a win really in an ugly fashion. Well, I guess the one silver lining is it was the first time this season where they won a game they were supposed to win and did so even when things weren't all clicking at once. I mean, obviously offense was like pulling teeth all day long, but you know Nebraska actually found different ways to win. First and foremost, they played one of their best defensive efforts of the season, forced – what, 24 turnovers, uh, 15 steals, uh, held a, a season-low point total. Uh, and so, I mean, really, the effort they put in on the defensive end of the floor was what not only won them the game, but allowed them to control the game throughout, even when they were shooting you know, barely over 30% from the field. So, I, And they got to the free throw line a lot. Uh, and so I think that's encouraging in the sense that, you know, compared to what happened earlier in this year, especially the first couple games, you know, when, when things aren't going right, now they're finally finding ways to to overcome it. And um, you know, maybe one of the more important things that just doesn't show up in the box score is just look at the body language of these guys. I mean, they were, you know, encouraging each other, high-fiving, uh, you know, picking each other up when, when a guy fell down on the floor. All the things they weren't doing a week ago uh, in that North Dakota loss when it was just a total disaster from start to finish, uh, I think that was the clear message over Christmas break was, you know, we need we need to become a team. Uh, I know that's been kind of an ongoing process, but there are things you can do like that that can make a huge progress where when things aren't going your way to develop that resiliency and lean on each other and support each other. You finally saw that in that Corpus Christi game. So, again, yeah, nothing to write home about, but Nebraska did what it needed to do, and it showed some some progress and some things that were severely lacking earlier in the year. Now it's on to the Big Ten again. Uh, Nebraska's 1-1 in the conference. Everybody's 1-1, right? I don't think a single uh, road team won in the early two, right? I think Michigan State. Oh, they – they beat Northwestern. They played that game a lot later. Yeah, it was, um, it was the last one that was going to make it a perfect one-on-one slate. And Northwestern was like, they had a chance to win it in the final minute. So it was a near one-on-one sweep for the first time as that I can remember. And if you're Tom Izzo, that was probably perfect to like use as motivation. Like, no one's done this. Let's do it. And it's a huge advantage if you can get off of that 2-0 and start. Nebraska's where everyone else is at. And, you know, if I would have told you one-on-one back in the summer – with Rutgers and Iowa coming to Lincoln, you'd like, you know what, this is a great opportunity for a good start, but both Rutgers and Iowa playing good basketball. Mm-hmm. Rutgers comes in. This is, a, I believe this will be the first conference Friday night game in PBA. Mm. They have, they, they've played a lot of Saturday, Sunday, obviously, but they have not played a conference Friday night game. Wow, yeah. How do you not know that? I don't know. That <laughs> just doesn't immediately. I'm a season ticket holder, so I I know these. Yeah, they they all blur together. Now they've played they played like non conference Friday night games, but the big the 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 Big Ten Friday night package is relatively newer. Um, no students in town, but I would think we'll get a good atmosphere. There were still ten thousand four hundred for the A and M Corpus yeah, Christi. It was actually a really good crowd for. I mean, it, it being on the tail end of Christmas with break. a terrible winter storm. Yeah, yeah, and that impacted a lot of travel too. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a good crowd, and I think the fact that they they won. I mean, that's what made that Corpus Christi game so important. That they had to get some good vibes going. I mean, that North Dakota game was such a gut punch because it came on the heels of them playing so well in those two Big Ten games, you know, going to Indiana and almost winning in overtime. Then less than 48 hours later, whipping Purdue, uh, for them to take that big of a step back was really discouraging for everyone involved, fans included. And so they needed to come out. And, you know, granted, they didn't play great 
but they played well enough and they did what they were supposed to do. And now, you know, you're six and seven, you're one and one in Big Ten play, and you got two straight home games and an actual favorable start to January, uh, which Nebraska hasn't had in a long time. So, yeah, you mentioned it. I mean, you know, Rutgers doesn't do much for you, but, you know, they're. They're better than people think. They're they're better than uh, what the typical Rutgers team is. They've already beaten Wisconsin. They've beaten Seton Hall. Uh, they gave Michigan State all they could handle. So, I mean, this is a Rutgers team that is by far no slouch, and that's going to be the theme of these next 18 games is there are no nights off. And you say that, you know, every year, but I think it's especially this year where top to bottom, this conference has, is as deep as we've seen it. Uh, they might not have the clear elite national champion front runner. Uh, but they have four or five teams that can make legitimate cases to, to be Final Four teams. Sweet 16 type yeah, teams. When all is said and done. Uh, and then, you know, the, the worst team in the league right now, most people would say either Nebraska or uh, Northwestern. And Nebraska already beat Purdue. They almost beat Indiana. Northwestern almost beat Michigan State. So th- this is going to be a 18-game grind in every sense. And for a team like Nebraska that has been so volatile with their ups and downs and inconsistency, the biggest test, I think, over the next two months is can they stabilize and play consistent basketball, consistent good basketball, and just be be a competitive team night in, night out. And Gervais Green, I know a lot of us were critical after North Dakota, just his body language, but it, it looked like he kind of hit the reset button, came back with good body language. Yeah, that was definitely – and, you know, when I talk about that body language, I think he in particular uh, stood out. I mean, he was a mess in that North Dakota game. I mean, just like openly bawling on the bench and uh, you know, visibly frustrated when he wasn't getting the ball. I think the whole arena was like that when they lost yeah. that game. Yeah, and so, you know, it's uh, – for him to b- respond the way that he did – is definitely good to see. Um, you know, obviously he's still not starting. Uh, hasn't started since being suspended before the Indiana game. Uh, but you know, he's. I think he's trying to make his the best of his situation. And the thing is, it's easy to be you know upbeat and positive when you're winning. But so what happens when you know Nebraska's down double digits in in Big Ten play somewhere, and Gervais only shot the ball three times? And that's that's the next step. Uh, will he be able to maintain that positivity and? Um, not let his emotions get the best of him like he did in that North Dakota game. And, you know, he did similar stuff in the Creighton game as well that I I, I saw firsthand. So um, a, a step in the right direction for sure. But, um, you know, I think he's, he's still got to show that he can be that type of guy um, every night, even if, you know, the, the stats aren't coming for him. And a lot's happened in recruiting. Obviously, we talked about Teddy Allen coming home to Nebraska. Um, but a couple of things to keep your eyes on here as well, right, Robin? Yeah, they had an official visitor, uh, another junior college um, redshirt sophomore, uh, Latin Mayen, M-A-Y-E-N. He's a 6'9", 200-ish to 10 uh, forward. He's listed as a power forward, but he's not a power forward. He's a, he's a stretch four who's shooting 43% from three-point range. And so the kind of perfect, versatile, inside-out uh, type of big that Fred Hoiberg loves. Uh, he was in town, and uh, you know I think things went very, very well there. To where um, it would not be surprising if Nebraska was able to add him as a commitment. They still have two open scholarships following the decommitment of Donovan Williams and the the departure of Samari Curtis. So they have um, you know spots to work with. And when you take into account that they have um, Ivan Wade Rogo and Derek Walker coming back next year there's not as pressing of a need for that big body center. So when you get a 6'9 guy that can shoot 43% from three, uh, you know that's kind of the perfect complement to what they're missing uh, looking ahead to next year's roster. So uh, kind of stay tuned on that, but certainly uh, it looks good right now. All right, when we come back, uh, Mike Wheeler is going to join us for his final show. 
um, in the mailbag. We had a nice lunch with Mike as well. So we'll, we'll send Mike away here next in his final sh- uh, show with us here as an intern at Husker Line. You're listening to the Husker Line show. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Final segment here of the Husker Online show. This segment brought to you by our friends at Kugler Vision Laser Correction uh, Vision Surgery, Nate Klaus. Um, not with us today, but he had a great experience with Kugler Vision. Uh, went in, got his consultation, got a surgery done. Uh, no more glasses, no more contacts. For Nate, I'm sure he's using that laser vision now, Robin, uh, driving home in in the massive snowstorm he's fighting on I-80. Yeah, good timing with that. And I can guarantee you that Nate will be seeing 2020 in 2020. (laughs) All right. All right. right. Well, it's time for the mailbag. Uh, Robin Washhead, Sean Callahan. And for one final time, Mike Wheeler. Mike, first of all, man, we've enjoyed having you on the team for uh, the last year and a half plus and um, it's been great getting a chance to work with you the, over this time here at Oscar Online. Yeah, I mean, guys, this has been a great experience for me. I, you know, I started out with Scout as a freshman, uh, went with 24-7 for a bit, and then moved over with you guys, and it's just been an awesome time. I mean, I've learned a lot from you, and uh, it'll be sad day, you know, when I walk out the door here. All right, well, what do you got? What's in the mailbag this week? All right, we'll start out here for a future uh, roster question. What is the most likely, or who is the most likely freshman or redshirt freshman wide receiver to break into the rotation and be a major contributor in 2020? I mean, you got to say, obviously, Omar Manning's not a freshman, so you can't say him, but Xavier Betts is, is where I think you start this conversation. Um, maybe Darian Chase, because he was the one that got on the field. Um, those are the two... I haven't seen Marcus Fleming really play or be in person, but I would assume he's the real deal. Yeah, I mean, Nance is probably in that conversation as well. But um, if he couldn't get on the field last year, then you know what's to say he's not going to get passed up. But opportunity will be abound at that position, no question about it. What do you got next? All right, guys. Uh, so a couple All-American, high school All-American games coming up this week. Uh, what are you guys expecting to see from Nebraska signees Turner Corcoran and Keyshawn Green in the uh, All-American game and then Henry Gray in the Under Armour game? Well, yeah, and uh, Blaze Gunnerson injured. Otherwise, he'd be in the All-American Bowl. Um, I know uh, Turner Corcoran looks looks the part. He's an early enrollee offensive lineman. Um, so I'm excited to see how he ha- handles that, that week. Um, you know, Keyshawn Green, I think when you look at freshman defensive guys, he might be the best and what he can bring at that uh, inside linebacker. You look at the secondary, Henry Gray, um, there's four freshman defensive backs coming in, three of the four early enrollees. That is a group where you might be able to see um, one or two of those guys get on the field next year. Now, Sean, you covered a bunch of these things over the years. What's the biggest thing a guy, a player, can take out of this? I mean, obviously you're playing against elite competition, but are the practices like just as valuable for those guys maybe as the, as the game itself? The practices are more valuable. Um, they've scaled it back. I, I've been to many of many of these deals where I've gone the whole week and I remember what used to happen is like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they would do two-a-days. They don't do that anymore and Everybody would be so excited to be there. I mean, and they would go so hard that guys would get hurt the first mm-hmm. day. It was kind of like the senior bowl in the NFL where all these guys are on the field and it would, they would have to kind of scale it back. Um, but one thing I would say is it's easy to go like all hot take and make, you know, like I remember one year we downgraded DeMarco Murray from a five-star to a four-star because he just didn't look good the entire week. Well, probably should have kept him as a five-star. Um, yeah, maybe. Andrew Luck. um, you know, I think we kept him as a four star. Um, he wasn't a five star, if I remember right. But 
Um, you know, he should have probably been ranked even higher, but he didn't look good in San Antonio. He didn't play well where there was a guy from Arkansas um, that went to go play in the Gus Malzahn system that year. Mm. And, you know, he looked like a million bucks in that game. And, you know, everybody thought he was the second coming, never did anything in college. So I think one thing is you can get a little carried away with all-star games and, and say like, all right, you know, this guy dominated that stage. It's a sure thing that he's going to be a dominant player, but it's still a whole different deal when you get to college. Yeah, as long as there's not a, a repeat of Noah Paul Gates trying to take out Wandale Robinson <laughs> on a play in the game, uh, then you consider and, it a success. And that's what you look for. Like, Noah, not Noah Paul Gates, but Wandale Robinson, just the flashes he showed. Like last year, Nate and Greg, are, when they went down there, they got so much out of that just to see Wandale and, and – you know, no one around here really gotten like footage of him like that. So um, that's what we try to go for um, when we're covering events like that. Well, I mean, you know, kind of going off of that, I guess this is kind of my own question here, but do you think Turner Corcoran can push for that five-star? I mean, depending on how this game goes? I think he's got a chance. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm more interested what he can do when he gets here in the spring um, because I think we're so set on Bryce Benhart maybe being the guy, but could Corcoran – push or is Corcoran just going to be the heir apparent to Hymas and play four games redshirt and then be the four-year starter after Hymas um, you know I think there'll be some really really good debate then Teddy Prochaska comes in the following year so Nebraska has three consecutive years where they'll have a national top 100 tackle they have not had any rivals 100 tackles in the history of the rivals rankings and they've got three in a row coming in so that's exciting, and I think Corcoran, when you look at him compared to a Ben Hart, is developmentally ahead of Ben Hart, but maybe Ben Hart obviously is a little bit bigger physically. All right, guys. So we'll head over here to recruiting. Uh, do you need to, or do we need to worry about Avante Diggerson maybe going elsewhere for college other than Nebraska? He's a very hard guy to read. Um, I think it's more a matter of how much can this staff get around Avante Dickerson. If you're not familiar listening, he's a national top 250 recruit out of Omaha Westside. He's got Ohio State, Oregon, LSU, and Nebraska. Now, I don't believe Ohio State and LSU, if he called them and tried to commit today, they wouldn't let him commit. Um, I think it's they offered him to kind of get into the conversation. But I know LSU has told him that he has to go to camp still to commit. Um, so it, it is an interesting deal when you talk about committable and non-committable offers. Uh, but, yeah, that, that will be a battle. It's going to be kind of like an Xavier Watts deal um, with Nebraska, and hopefully the staff can build a relationship with Avante. All right, uh, we'll head over to basketball now, uh, Robin. In an evolution of Hoiberg's system, is there a place for uh, high-low post movement to open things up for shooters, and are we starting to see an element of that come into play? Uh, yeah, there certainly is, uh, and that's what you get with – uh, the types of bigs that um, Fred Hoiberg's recruiting, you know, not necessarily the, the traditional, uh, you know, 6'10", 260-pound centers, uh, but the guys that can move around. And being able to operate out of the high post is so valuable, especially when it comes to breaking zone defenses. And what's one kryptonite that's been Nebraska uh, for opposing defenses is when they drop into a zone, pack the paint, and make him beat him with three-point shooting. And so being able to get that touch in the in the high post to – create some spacing um, you know draw the defense in kick it out to an open shooter uh, yeah that was certainly a, a part of Hoiberg's offense uh, and one that will definitely be used more and more as they continue to get the types of guys that can create those mismatches in the high post I mean you just look back like when, when Nebraska's was good last year it was when Isaac Copeland was getting touches in the high post and being able to operate and so I think that's exactly what you look for especially you know when teams try to just dare Nebraska to beat them uh, you create those shots by getting touches in the paint even if you're 
you're not near the basket. All right, we got time for two more, Mike. All right, so we'll head back over to recruiting. With the Huskers having no 2020 freshman recruits at defensive end so far, uh, can Nebraska really afford to miss on defensive end uh, class this year? Do you think that they can rely on the older guys in the program? Yeah, that's a, a great question because you know there is versatility um, with some of these defensive linemen. They can play inside. They can play outside. Um, but Nash Hutmacher, as we know, is going to be a true a true nose. Marquis Black can play both spots, the nose and the end, and the 3-4. Um, but I think in a perfect world, they would like to get – if they have two spots left they can use, they would like to maybe use one of those two for a high school defensive end. But it's got to be a guy good enough. Otherwise, they're going to hold those back for the transfer portal. All right, so last one here, guys. Uh, the NFL playoffs, uh, have their, they've now been set. Great week 17 capped off by a great Jeez. 49ers and Seahawks game. <laughs> uh, but do you guys, who do you guys have in the Super Bowl, and who do you have winning it all? It's so wide. This is about as wide open of a year because, like, so many years you could just say Patriots, but, I mean, it, it just feels like it's coming to an end for New England. I mean, I think Brady has shut down his, his uh, nonprofits and some of the things, like, it's almost like he's – closing shop in new england and mm -hmm. so you know is lamar jackson or Mahomes going to get their team to the super bowl and um i think you got to probably give the edge to baltimore right now and i would say i mean if new orleans would have got home field they'd be really hard to beat but having to take that show outdoors to maybe green bay um san francisco weather's not always an issue there but Man, that's a tough one um, in the NFC. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say Baltimore versus San Francisco. That's a pretty good guess. That's probably what I would lean towards right now. Uh, the fact that San Francisco was able to secure home field um, with that win um, on Sunday night was so valuable. <laughs> Maybe the most valuable like inch in regular season history, the fact that both those teams needed to be at home in order to really lock kept down the Saints. a path. Yeah, they kept the Saints you know, for, to have to play the wild card round. Um, so I think that the NFC is a crapshoot right now just because they have home field. Uh, I'd go with the Niners. I trust them far more than I do Green Bay. Um, and in the AFC, until someone shows me they can stop Lamar Jackson, I don't see who's beating Baltimore. I think Baltimore and uh, San Francisco make it, and Baltimore wins the Super Bowl. Kansas City did beat Baltimore, but that was early in the year. They did, and, and they'll have to beat him in Baltimore. So we'll see. What, what do you got, Mike? Well, you know, our listeners can't see it, but I am wearing my uh, Green Bay Packers uh, crew next hoodie here. So, uh, so I made, know, I'm made sure to put a shot at Green Bay on there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I noticed that one. So, you know, I'm going to be a homer here. I'm going to go Packers Ravens. You know, the problem with Green Bay is the Green Bay Packers have won terrible all year. They haven't looked great. Um, I'm really looking forward to, I think the Seahawks uh, will beat the Eagles pretty easily. Uh, but just getting another 49ers Seahawks game, I think, is going to be a good kind of uh, little NFC game. It'll be awesome. But the e two classics just this watch, year for watch. the, two the of NFC them. East was the joke of the league, and now the, the Cowboys almost back the their stupid way. Eagles are going to win a couple playoff games and just make my month miserable. <laughs> well, Mike, hey, thank you, and uh, don't be a stranger. And when you need life advice, go on the Red Sea Scrolls and yeah, ask, ask all your questions <laughs> to the board because we've got a lot of guys on there that could give you lawyer advice and. <laughs> relationship get advice the, get the guy's finance major yep. you know i don't need finance advice from uh, red sea scrolls <laughs> but hey mike thanks a lot uh, we appreciate your time with us here and uh, best of luck here in the future all right thanks for having me guys all right well happy new year to everyone and thanks here for joining us on this special post all decade edition of the husker online show thanks again for joining us this week on husker online your authority on nebraska athletics